Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have The War of the Weeds by Carl Jacoby. Jacoby grew up in Minnesota reading the works of Jules Verne, Edgar Allan Poe, and H.G. Wells. And many of his stories take place in the state in which he grew up and lived most of his life. He wrote short stories in many genres, including horror, science fiction, fantasy, crime, and adventure, and appeared in such pulps of the bizarre and uncanny as thrilling, ghost stories, startling stories, and strange stories, as well as adventure pulps, like Thrilling Adventures, Complete Stories, The Skipper, and Doc Savage. Today's story originally appeared in the February 1939 Thrilling Wonder Stories. This story is also included in our recent release from Brick Pickle Media, Minnesota Not So Nice, now available in print and ebook formats. It features new and old pulp stories set in the state of Minnesota. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. You can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website, and that link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. The War of the Weeds by Carl Jacoby. Doom menaces humanity when the vibrations of death descend to earth. At 10 o'clock on the morning of May 3rd, 1956, Harold Field, hired man on the farm of Gustav Peterson in Carver County, Minnesota, was alone in the east field that skirts Highway No. 7 seeding corn. Resting a moment to light his pipe, he was suddenly knocked to the ground by what seemed a blinding flash of light and a thunderous report. When he opened his eyes, it was to gaze upon an upraised mound of earth, the center of which was pierced by a circular hole. Field moved forward, examined this hole, and failing to touch bottom, reported the matter to his employer. Peterson, who owned the property, had read something of meteorites and at once telephoned Professor John Calfay, who he remembers vacation in Victoria, three miles away. Employer and hired man then took shovels and went out to dig. By nightfall, they finally brought to the surface the object which had apparently fallen from the sky. Tapered at either end, it resembled a large shell, three feet in length, seven and a half inches in width. It was formed of a black, amazingly light metal. Meanwhile, Professor Calfay, who had won lasting fame a year before for his development of the mechanist's theory of growth, rushed to the Peterson farm, and with his assistant, Lawson Gage was present when the cartridge was opened. The cartridge and its contents made front-page news in every paper in the country. Inside the shell was found a hollow chamber filled with fine, granulated matter that resembled ground coffee. According to the professor, the Peterson shell reached the Earth from some point in outer space. Its construction pointed obviously to the work of beings of scientific intelligence, especially the middle core, which was formed of coronium, a substance discovered in the corona of the sun and known on this Earth only in a gaseous state. On May 6th, under Calfay's direction, a quarter acre of the east field was cultivated and harrowed, and one half of the shell seed sown broadcast. Results were startling. At the end of a week, they had apparently reached full growth, an average height of 4 feet 6 inches. These weeds, and no other word adequately describes them, were of a peculiar shape. The top half of the plant formed an oblong protuberance, not unlike that of the common cattail, save that it was a brittle, reedy material and was hollow, with a small opening on one side. The odd part of it was that from the 12th to the 15th of the month, there was little or no wind. It was not until the 16th that Calfay made his discovery. The professor was sitting on the veranda of the Peterson farmhouse, where he established his temporary headquarters when Lawson Gage suddenly broke into his reflections. What's that funny noise? Calfay drew his pipe from his lips and listened. I don't hear anything. It stopped now. I've been noticing for ten minutes. 
It seems to sound only when the wind blows. There. Calfay heard it then. High-pitched and wailing, there swept out of the field to his ears a distinct chord like the vibrato of a hundred clarinets. Then the wind died and the sound ceased. He sat puzzled, a full minute last before he jerked erect. It's the weeds! Come on! With a gauge at his heels, the white-haired scientist ran down the steps and across the farmyard, heading for the east field. Arriving there, the two men drew up short. Before them, densely packed, the weeds formed a gently undulating carpet. And issuing from the reed-like top blooms, the droning chords sounded like a great harp. Cathay whipped a knife from his pocket and cut up the nearest stalk. Holding it by the far end, he swung it to and fro over his head. The result was a thin, drawn-out scream. "'What the devil do you make of it?' Lawson Gage asked. He was a tall, dark-haired youth with gimlet eyes and a high, broad forehead. In silence, the professor moved slowly through the field, cutting off bloom after bloom, studying them. At length, he looked up. "'On the surface, the phenomenon is simple!' The brittle tops of these weeds form an almost perfect musical instrument, and when wind blows, they give forth a sound. Each bloom is of a slightly different size, so the tones vary. But you don't notice anything about the sound as a whole. Gage listened. Yes, it sounds as if a high voice were saying over and over again, Doom! Doom! And so it did. Continuing his investigation, Cathay found that the weeds reached maturity within the brief period of eight days. A small pouch formed on the stalk then, which opened and spread more seeds to the wind. There was, however, no more evidence of the weeds multiplying in any dangerous abundance. A fear which the professor had harbored since he planted the first lot. It was apparent that for successful growth, the earth must be first carefully pulverized. But by opening these pouches prematurely, planting them in a separate field and making a detailed catalog of each planting, Calthy made another discovery. The seeds of each weed, he found, propagated a bloom of the exact size and tone note as the original. The scientist moved over this for some time until an idea struck him. Over the dinner table one night in the Peterson house, he spoke to his assistant. You used to be interested in music before you turned to science, didn't you, Lawson? Gage nodded. Directed my college orchestra and learned to play the Moonlight Sonata on the piano. But after that, Einstein proved too great a lure. Why? Calfway toyed with his fork a moment and turned to Peterson. Is there a fairgrounds in the vicinity? Or a place where there's a grandstand that might be available for rent? Peterson stared. Yes. The county fairgrounds are at Carver, and there's a good-sized grandstand. But what on earth? Hereafter, for the next three weeks, Calthay and Gage worked in mysterious seclusion. No inkling of what the scientist was up to reached the public until the 20th of June, when the following notice appeared in the Carver County Clarion. Cosmic Symphony, Carver Fairgrounds at 8 p.m., admission free. Tonight, assuming meteorological predictions are correct and there will be a sufficiently strong east wind, I shall attempt a musical experiment with the Peterson Space Shell weeds. The weeds which have musical properties have arranged in order of their proper tones with the same attention to harmony as a pipe organ. By means of draw shades, I propose to control the wind as much as possible and produce ear-pleasing results. The public is cordially invited to attend this performance. Professor John Calthay. The draw shades were seen by the first arrivals at the fairgrounds as large sheets of canvas strung in triple tiers on wires on the west side of the racetrack. The fact that these canvas sheets had originally been hay covers pressed into service from neighboring farms detracted little from the public's general excitement. But more than Carver County was present. The afternoon train brought representatives of the United Press and Associated Press, in addition to syndicate and feature writers, not to mention Sir Hammond Gore, the eminent music critic of New York City. Also, there was Professor Albert Descartes of the Federal University of Science, and Dr. A.T. Holwell, astronomical authority and author of Can We Reach Mars? Inside the race track, a curious sight was revealed. 
The entire oval arena, which was surrounded by a high board fence, was a field of densely packed weeds, four to five feet in height. All of them in a luxuriant green color. In the judge's stand before the grandstand, Professor Calthay stood, his white locks streaming in the wind. At his side was the ever-present Lawson Gage. After a short speech in which he spoke of the Peterson shell and its potentialities, Calthay gave a signal and five of the draw curtains were pulled back. A steady east wind was blowing. The weeds in the arena began to wave and undulate. An instant later, the audience had electrified. A high, melodious chord vibrated through the evening air. Swelling as the wind increased, it reverberated against the grandstand, growing louder and louder. Up on the west wall of the racetrack, under the glare of the floodlights, six men on high ladders stood watching Calthay. After a moment, the scientist waved his hand. Five curtains were drawn closed, leaving only one open space at the far side of the field. Almost imperceptibly at first, the song of the weeds changed. Slowly, it mounted the octaves into a higher register. The audience was buzzing with excitement now. Once again, Calthay raised his hand to give a signal, but abruptly a hush fell on the grounds. Above them, the crowd noticed for the first time a black storm cloud. The wind returned with a shriek, and simultaneously something happened. In the grandstand, the crowd rose en masse, searched for the exits. Screams rose up. Screams of agony and horror. Seats banged, crashed. A woman stood up, tore insanely at her hair. A man flailed his arms and dived head foremost over the rear wall. Stop it! For God's sake, stop it! Somebody yelled. For five minutes, the horror continued. Then the screams died and the crowd quieted. But none lingered to find an explanation of what had happened. Filing in bewilderment out of the fairgrounds, they stumbled into their cars and drove madly away. Lost and Gage leaned white-faced against the wall of the judge's stand and stared incredulously at the professor. In heaven's name, what was it? The press went wild after that, and Calthay, in response to popular excitement, called a consultation of three scientists. Getting, Harcourt, and DeRose, all the Federal University of Science. Second, he published an admission of his error in the fairgrounds incident. It was absurd, he declared, to believe one could control the amount of wind striking the weeds by such elementary means as shifting canvas curtains. The variation in tone must have been caused by other reasons. But it was Lawson Gage who hit upon the channel leading to the correct answer. Undoubtedly, Gage said, the thing that so upset the audience in the Carver Grandstand was some form of sound. Now, we know the highest sound the human ear can detect is 41,000 vibrations per second. The sensory portions of our brain do not register a vibration above that until we come to a frequency of 370 million million, when we begin to see rays of red light. It therefore stands to reason that ordinary sound, no matter how high pitch of the ear's receptive capacity, would have no effect on the human body. But the thing which came from the space shell weeds may have been more than sound. Isn't it possible these weeds as living organisms developed along an entirely different evolutionary scale? might throw off into the vibratory field some form of energy, which we of Earth cannot understand. Add to that that this energy, a botanical one if you will, is insufferable to the human brain, and you have it. Gage may have had it, but the public didn't. Interest continued under force of newspaper sensationalism, then gradually waned. But on July 16th, to use Professor Calthay's own words, hell broke loose. Three spies, unquestionably in the service of August Strasvig, dictator of the new Middle European Empire, were captured and tried in military court at Washington, D.C. Two were executed, the third escaped. And with the third man's escape was announced the disappearance of the Peterson shell, which it will be remembered had been resealed with half the original weed seeds and been kept for convenience sake in the Peterson farmhouse. In their room that night, Calthay and Gage discussed this situation. I should never have left the shell there unguarded, the scientist said. If my simple experiment in the fairgrounds had such a terrible effect on people, who's to say what military-minded scientists might not do with these weeds, working along different lines? I tell you, Gage, the possibilities are horrible. Lawson Gage nodded. 
and not only to the world at large, but to ourselves. What do you mean? For answer, the assistant got up and went out the door. A moment later, he returned to place upon the table a small black box, upon the top of which was mounted an ordinary alarm clock. This, he said, in case you didn't recognize it, is an infernal machine, a time bomb. I found it under the house last night, but decided to say nothing about it until now. The idea, I believe, was to blow us all the kingdom come. But why? Who? Nothing so difficult in that. As you stated, some foreign power evidently recognized in those weeds a potential instrument for world power. They see in you the only possible person who could block their plans. So they intend to remove you, and perhaps me too, from the picture. And on the 15th of August, the weed plague suddenly appeared in Ontario. Overnight, it was reported, vast fields of the strange weeds took growth, sown there by an unknown force. A week later, the terrible sickness began to strike down the population. The plague was a form of madness, similar to that which had stricken the audience in the Carver Grandstand, but a thousand times more virulent. Death came in a few hours, and the weeds seemed impregnable to all attack. Life in the United States continued unchanged, and then in midwinter, the plague struck lower California. It's just as I feared, Calfay exclaimed. Some scientist with a brain trained to military destruction has developed these weed seeds. In their new form, they will grow apparently without the pulverization of the soil, which I found necessary. Also, they are much more powerful. Nothing seems able to stop them. They propagate faster than man can destroy them. And when they sway in the wind, they give forth their vibration that strange energy which no human brain can stand. The one and only thing in our favor is the time of the year. It will be three months before the seeds can take hold in a northern climate. Gage nodded tensely. What are we going to do? The question was never answered. A roaring crash sounded, and the reading lamp at Calfe's side burst into a thousand fragments. With a single leap, the scientist was across through the door, running out into the yard. A tall shadow fled before him. Calfe, his aged legs moving like pistons, raced in pursuit around the west side of the barn and down the lane to the road. Stop! Stop! Two more shots cut lanes of fire through the blackness. Calfay heard one of them whistle by a scant hitch from his ear, but the shadow did not stop. He continued long, leaping stride. An instant later, the roar of a powerful motor sounded, and a car without headlights sped down the road. Close, Gage observed dryly. If you'd been sitting near, near that lamp, that bullet would have got you. The next day, Calfay caught the afternoon train for Flagstaff, Arizona. Arriving at the famous astronomical observatory there, the scientist announced his mission. I want to make a spectroscopic analysis of the light from as many stars of the ninth magnitude as I can. The first sign of the hysteria which was to follow was now finding its way into the press. Weed fields were springing up in California and New Mexico. Nothing seemed able to halt their advance. There were reports of planes sighted over the Mexican border dropping small containers which opened when they struck the ground. The War Department had reinforced the Border Patrol and National Guard units from three states were called into action. In some localities, the weeds apparently had no harmful effect, but in most cases, the opposite was tragically the case. The population of entire towns was wiped out. Asylums were being filled with gibbering idiots, inmates who had managed to escape, told of a weird singing chord that seemed to drift on the wind, a chord that brought madness ending in death. The Department of Agriculture telegraphed Calfay three times, begging him to take charge of the fight against this mysterious menace. 26 of the country's leading botanists were already at work, attempting to produce some means of preventing further germination of the weeds. But Cathay maintained a deliberate silence on his labors in the Flagstaff Observatory. It was on Christmas Eve that Cathay's work was rewarded with the discovery. In observing the spectroscopic color range of a ninth magnitude star, Molaris A, through the recently discovered Johnson Magnus spectroscope, he found unmistakable traces of coronium. Feverishly, he turned the gigantic telescope, studying that section of the heavens. An hour later, the scientist packed his bags and raced back to the Peterson Farm in Carver County, Minnesota. Lawson, 
I've got it. You remember that the center core of that space shell is made of coronium. Now, whereas all matter is generally equally divided over the entire universe, coronium is a very rare substance. Even in outer space, there are a few traces of it. But a spectroscopic examination of that light from star Molaris A shows its presence. So what? Gage interrupted skeptically. But don't you see? It means that that shell came from that star. Or rather, from one of several dark planets which must be moving in an orbit around Molaris A, part of another system. I still don't see. Let me put it this way. The inhabitants of that planet evidently are faced with cosmic disintegration, which is gradually destroying their atmosphere. They want to make a complete exodus to another planet. And Earth is perhaps one of several likely for the needs and conditions. They realize, however, that the population of Earth is already large and would be in conflict with them. I get it, cried Gage then. So they sent out that shell filled with seeds, which they hope will kill off the population of Earth. Cathay nodded. Exactly. But conditions here were not precisely as they had expected, and the seeds did not have quite the necessary potency. It remained for man, in his lust for world power, to develop the seeds and strive for that same purpose. We must stop those weeds. But how? We're back at the same question. And I have the answer to that question. The center core of the space shell was formed of coronium. It was used because of the negative effect on the weeds, preventing possible germination. In coronium, therefore, lies our weapon. I'll get in touch with Washington at once. Prior to 1952, the world's entire supply of coronium gas was limited to the volcano of Displazio in Italy. In 1952, coronium pockets were found at Cotopaxi, Mexico, and in central Colorado. Immediately upon Calthay's secret report to the Secretary of Agriculture, all sources of this gas were tapped. Special transports were dispatched to convey natural coronium to a temporary headquarters set up at San Diego. On March 15th, the fear of the world crystallized in a general all-wave radio warning broadcast from Danzig, new capital of the Middle European Empire. The voice of August Strasvig, dictator, declared, The wheat plague is a product of Middle European scientists. Only a minute quantity of the seeds at our disposal have been used. But they will be used to destroy entire foreign civilizations unless mass acknowledgement of the authority of our government is made. We have developed the weeds so that our potency will continue as long as we see fit. We give the world one month to decide. One month! Strasvig has spoken. Preparations during that month progressed with wartime rapidity. Coronium warehouses were established in New York, Chicago, Minneapolis, New Orleans, Denver. Experimental bombardments of lower California weed fields already had been entirely successful. The listed stock of a manufacturer of spray guns skyrocketed at 30 points as the company, through mass advertising, disposed of thousands of its products. Fake weed-destroying compounds and plague preventatives appeared on the market in great variety. On both coasts and on the Mexican and Canadian borders, anti-aircraft guns were set up at intervals of every few miles. The United States was arming in the strangest way it had ever known. Then days of anxious waiting, confusing reports. Strasvig had disappeared. Strasvig was dead. The dictator would strike tomorrow. Professor Calthay watched the developments with grim eyes. Isn't it ironic that the people fear one man on the other side of the earth? But the trouble has its inception millions of miles out in space, and yet one menace is interdependent with the other, with civilization at stake. April 15, 1957 dawned, a gray day at the Peterson farm, with low-flying clouds and a threat of coming rain. Foreboding hung in the sky. The very air seemed charged with menace. Calfe engaged, sat in the farmhouse veranda, gazing out at the fields. The east field is barren now, the original space shell weeds having been destroyed with coronium. Although, as the professor had remarked, the precaution was unnecessary, since these weeds were of an entirely different type from those developed by Strasbourg scientists. Professor Calthay just lit his pipe and Gage was idly turning the pages of a magazine when the sound came. Not the sound of weeds, but the low drone of airplane motors high up in the sky above the cloud level, steadily grew nearer, louder. Something funny about that, 
Gage said. That's a six-motor stratosphere transport, or I'm a Dutchman. But it's coming down, and there's no ship scheduled here at this time of day. He turned around to the house to reappear a moment later with a pair of binoculars. Focusing the glasses, he gave a yell of surprise. It's radio-controlled, he cried. See the helix antenna? There's no one aboard. Straight as a bullet, the plane shot toward the ground. And now the two scientists could detect the markings on the wings. The circle surrounded triangle of Strasvig's empire. A trap opened in the bottom of the fuselage and something plummeted downward like a falling stone. It's a seed bomb, Cathay cried. Get the coronium! But an instant later, the two men stood stunned. The seed bomb had burst, and already before their eyes, weeds were taking growth. Even as they watched, the ground seemed to quiver, erupting greenish stalks, which shot up, matured to full growth, and multiplied with terrific rapidity. In a matter of seconds, the field was an expanding sea of green, and a dull roar mounted into the air as the weeds swept forward on four fronts. Come on, Calfe cried. We've got to get the coronium. If a wind springs up and hits those weeds, the plague will start again. We'll all be madmen. They turned and rushed toward the barn. There they met Peterson and Field. Feverishly, they began the task of loading the metal coronium tanks into the rear of the Peterson truck. But Gage, after the last tank had been put in place, suddenly turned, a queer glitter in his eyes, and ran in long strides back to the house. The truck rumbled out into the field. Calfay and Peterson worked like mad to fasten long nozzles with two metal hoses to coronium containers. When they reached the field, they stopped for a moment, appalled. As far as the eyes could reach, the farm was a great sea of weeds, an ever-growing ocean of green sweeping outward. Calfay's heart sank. They could never stop the enveloping advance of the little coronium they had. Indeed, even as Calfay looked, he doubted whether coronium would have any effect on this new variety of weeds. All the preparations last month seemed in vain. Field! He yelled. Rush back to the house. Get Fort Snell in a long-distance telephone to tell him it's happening. Tell him to bring every available tank of coronium gas there is in the district. Tell him to radio Washington. Call the governor. When the wind starts, the plague will sweep across the country like a thousand black deaths. Even as he spoke, the wind came. Like a huge chorus of contraltos, the vibrations rose louder and louder. With that sound, Cathay felt the madness begin to eat into his brain. Field and Peterson had fallen to the ground and were clawing at the hair, screaming insanely. The wind increased. Cathay's heart began to race. He could feel his eyes bulging in their sockets. And then the scientist heard a dull rumble. He saw his assistant, Lawson Gage, rushing forward, propelling a two-wheel car laden with machinery, even as it plane circled again to drop another seed bomb. Above it, resting on a wooden superstructure, was a large wafer-like object, yellowish-brown in, in color, from which a network of wires appended. Calfay's cry was a feeble whisper. Gage, for God's sake, run! I... I can't! The weeds! Through bloodshot eyes, the professor saw that Gage's face exhibited no signs of badness. His eyes were gleaming with anticipation. He wore over his ears a headset of strange, oversized earphones. With a quick movement, Gage halted the cart and brought out three more pairs of earphones. He snapped one over the head of Calfay, bent down, and repeated the process with Peterson in field. To his amazement, Calfay found the vibrating madness in his brain had subsided. It's my own idea of a method to stop the plague, Gage said. I've been working on it while you were at Flagstaff, but I said nothing because I had a chance to try it out as of yet. Those earphones permit you to hear me because I'm talking to you through a microphone. They also neutralize the sound energy of the weeds at the same time. But how? How? The government has been experimenting for weeks on something like this, but failed. What's that thing up there? It looks like a gigantic seed. That's exactly what it is, Gage replied. It contains thousands of partially germinated weed seeds held together in a clothing and paste. All growth, as anyone who believes in the mechanist's theory knows, is a form of energy. I discovered the energy of the space shell weeds is a negative energy. I'm fighting with what I call the Gage mass ray. A superdevelopment of Goldstein's chronostran and the Thompson positive ray. 
By ionization of gas at a low pressure in a strong electric field, I can detach negative electrons from the atoms, recapture those electrons by colliding them with charged particles, and produce a neutral ray. That's what I'm doing inside that huge seed. Gage had turned to the cart now and was working frantically over a panel covered with dials and switches. The neutral ray is adaptable to almost any form of transmission. A small part of it is deflected along a high-frequency current directly into your earphones. That neutralizes the man is striking your brain. Since light and sound are both vibrations, as is energy itself, in fact, I had no difficulty shunting the remainder into the vibratory fields. In other words, I'm fighting the weeds through their own sound. Gage turned a dial and pulled a switch. A low drone rose up into the air. He pulled a second switch. The droning mounted slowly. Even with the earphones on, Calthay could hear it. And something was happening to the field of weeds. Writhing as in agony, the top looms were losing their greenish color, slowly turning black. The wind became a driving gale. Mounting in magnitude, the horrible wailing cord rose higher. Again, Calthay could feel the madness eating his brain. The earphones seemed powerless to prevent it. He saw Peterson rock backward and utter a hoarse scream. He saw Gage's face go white. His teeth bite deep into his lips. And then, with shaking hands, the assistant turned his control as far as it would go. An arc of purplish flame hovered above the machinery-laden cart. The singing cord died away, and before them the weeds seemed slowly to dissolve into nothingness. A hush fell over the farm. A moment later, where the green stalks had been, was only bleak desolation. It's all over, Professor John Cathy said that night on the veranda of the Peterson house. With Gage's machine and others which will be built like it, we can prevent the weed growth in any part of the country. The attempt of Malaris A to annihilate the civilization of the Earth has been defeated. Strasbourg and his middle Europe can be fought on common grounds. The War of the Weeds is at an end. And it's all through your efforts, the scientist went on, turning toward his assistant. Once again, Gage, you have won over me in conquering a problem. What have you to say, my young friend? Lawson Gage smiled. Pour me another highball, he said, and don't hold the horses on the scotch. And that is it for this week's episode of the Pulp Audio Cast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening today. And just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.